Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. If you're looking to throw some optics on your turkey gun this spring, look no further than the Vortex Defender ST. This is the red dot we're going to be running this season. We're excited about it. This thing's built like a tank, super lightweight, super long battery life, everything you need in a good turkey red dot. And if you want to get a discount on that red dot or any other Vortex Optic, go to eurooptic.com and use the code SGN10 to get a discount. That's eurooptic.com, code SGN10. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar. May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you. And we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Today, we are getting out of our comfort zone a little bit, and we're hitting up South Florida with Mr. Ray Martin. Ray, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? I'm doing great, Jacob. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. It's been a super busy day uh, vetting out some uh, potential guests for the podcast that you guys are going to love. But just like Ray, Ray, you were a guy I talked to a couple weeks ago uh, about doing a podcast episode. You were recommended to us by a couple different listeners and after doing a little research, uh, I had seen that, you know, you are a, a person who has a ton of success hunting in South Florida on public land uh, and, and doing really outstanding when it comes to you, your son, and kind of the group of guys that y'all hunt with when it comes to not only tagging out every year, but taking really, really good deer, uh, especially for the region. So, Ray, to kind of get us started, can you kind of tell us a little bit about yourself from, like, the region, the state that you're coming in from? Um, and also like a little bit of your background when it comes to bow hunting and getting into hunting, because I, I find it's kind of fascinating after I heard it on another podcast. And then we'll kind of dive real deep on the topic of, uh, you know, this July, August rut that y'all have down there. Well, appreciate you guys having me on. And uh, the guys that recommended me, appreciate you guys. Uh, we just try hard. We're persistent at hunting. Uh, background in hunting, my old man uh, was a hunter, mostly uh, waterfowl and birds. Picked up uh, since eight years old, I've been in the woods. And basically, when I was about seven, I pretty much started uh, deer hunting and hog hunting and learned that on my own. Our type of hunting down here, nowhere near what you guys got up north. So whatever you might read on any magazine, books, ain't going to work down here. So it's pretty much, it was uh, just bumping heads at the beginning trying to figure out how to hunt down here. But once we got that going, I figured out what was a good style of hunt it, how to hunt it. 
I mean, from there on, we just knocked it off and started killing deer and hogs, turkey, pretty much. We use the same strategy for pretty much all our hunts. And I think we can dive right into that strategy uh, or part of that strategy, which I know based off our conversations and, and what I've seen you talk about, especially on your Instagram uh, page, is being aggressive, not being a, um, a not, not going to say patient hunter, but really going out of the way to try to be successful. And either you're going to screw up or you're going to be able to have an awesome hunt because you're going to make it happen and you're not going to necessarily wait for that deer to come to you. So let, let's talk a little bit about, especially when it comes to boses and just kind of diving right into this, the areas that you kind of hunt in South Florida, can you talk about the habitat down there? Like what are you dealing with that makes this aggressive style of hunting more applicable down there, um, especially when you're talking kind of early season? Well, we got basically flat land. Uh, there ain't no hills here. So it's all flat land, uh, pastures. We do have some pine heads, palmettos, cypress heads. But generally, the area most of everybody down here hunts, it's all pretty much just a lot of open ground. So you've got a lot of visibility. So you can actually, you can either get on your climber, back of the truck, put up a ladder and just kind of just glass, I mean, a couple thousand area thousand yards and it's just basically a lot of glassing and just checking out different areas driving down the road glassing down another field and our scouting comes into key there because i mean we'll go scout uh we've been scouting for three weeks now right from daybreak till dark so we're watching bucks where they come in to a field where they'll leave or hang out midday so we kind of just figure what we got to do depending on that time frame we got. And but it's a lot of uh binoculars out there it's just spotting. Whenever we see a deer, we just kind of figure out where the wind's going. We'll get on Google Earth if we need to. I mean if we can figure out how to come in from the backside of a oak head instead of just going straight at them on a two foot pasture or small clumps of grass. I mean we'll figure all that we'll use drainage ditches. I mean, we'll be wet. I mean, I've been I've been in waist deep water trying to get up to a deer, but you got to do what you got to do. When you say I want to paint a little bit more of a picture of the habitat here. When you say field, what kind of field is it? Is this like an agricultural field or it, it's it's all pasture? I mean, yeah, cattle pasture. So I mean, you'll have what we call flat ponds. Uh, they're pretty much everywhere out here. So you'll have flat land short grass, a couple small little clumps of grass. Some areas are full dog fennel. It's just a little higher weed and you can kind of maneuver through them. There's a lot of drainage ditches for those pastures. So if we got to just crawl on the side of the, of the drainage ditches, I mean, that's perfect cover, but you're going to be wet, but it whatever it takes, that's what we got to do. Yeah, I was recently actually in South Florida, and I was seeing a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, and I was kind of blown away at actually how open it was, because as someone who's really never been to South Florida, I was picturing just an absolute jungle, and the, a lot of the places I went, like you're talking about, you could see several hundred yards, a, a thousand yards or more, and there'd be a few pine trees here and there, and then it would look like what I'm assuming is like cypress ponds, I guess that's the flag ponds that you're talking right. about. Yeah, yeah, right, right, yeah, but I mean, we do have thick areas. But it's general, I would say about 50-50. I mean, we have, we have pastures, we have thick pine heads, cypress heads. So we have a variety. It's not just one particular way of hunting it. It, would, it all depends on the area. And then the oak heads that you were talking about, can you explain that, that terminology and what an oak head is? Well, oak heads are basically uh, when they cleared all the land for pasture for cattle, they just left clumps of uh, oaks. I mean, some could be a couple hundred yards. Some could be just maybe a, a 30 yard circle. And it's just basically to give the cattle some, some shade area, but we'll use all that area to pimp to just kind of work our way through. If we see a deer, a couple hundred yards from it, like we'll bump from one to another, just so we can cover ourselves. That's what we're trying to put that stock on. Mm-hmm. And we definitely want to get into the, the stalking aspect and, and glassing these deer and everything. But 
I, I got to ask, because again, I was just driving through South Florida. I kept thinking like, man, I just don't even know where to begin of like how a deer would actually use this place because it's, it's like a lot of grassland type looking stuff. They'll bed down right into the pasture. I mean, all day. Like just out in the middle of the grasslands. Just in the middle of the grassland, you got maybe two foot clumps of grass and you'll have five, six deer just bedded there all day. And then you're glassing a field and you're like, well, there's nothing out there. They're bedded there. And if you glass good enough, you'll see ears or antler tips. And that's when we figure out how to put a stock on them. And then when you got three to four does, maybe one or two bucks, I mean, you got a lot of eyes. We bring out our little, uh, what we basically uh, check the rent, the little uh, powder puff things, and uh, figure out the wind, kind of glass around, see what else is out there that might screw Art on up. And from there on, it's just sometimes belly crawling, getting on our knees and just working little by little. I mean, you're, you might, it might take an hour to get about 100 yards. Do they ever, just one more thing on the bedding thing, are they ever bedded up against something, like like a feet, like a fallen tree or a larger clump of grass, or are they just out in the middle of nothing? Sometimes they are, but most of the deer we put stock on, if they're bedded, it's a wide open pasture. I mean, they got 360 visibility. There's nothing, to, anything that's coming at them, they can pretty much see. So that's, they use that to their advantage. Mm-hmm. Okay, I lied. I have one more question on bedding. <laughs> so if you're picking apart these grasslands and they're kind of bedded out there in the middle, uh, you know, they have that side advantage 360 degrees, um, and you're getting ready to put a stalk on them, so I'm assuming you're always checking the wind. Are they always bedded with the wind at their back? Is there ever, like, a pattern with how they're bedded with the wind? Well, I mean, if you got three, four deer, they're pretty much looking all around. So it's, uh, I mean, they usually, they're looking with the wind at their back, but they're, we just see them pretty much like a 360 and it's just get down real low, use whatever cover you got. Like I said, drainage ditches work great there, but you'll be in water. There are some gators. There is snakes. <laughs> we got to deal. We got to deal with that. So, uh, but it's part of the nature, man. All right. So I've got some more questions, Ray, in regards to, habitat and also how these deer specifically the bucks use this habitat i know you're a big time wildlife photographer as well if anybody follows your instagram page you have some unbelievable photos up there and uh you posted Thank one you, yeah yeah you posted one not very long ago i mean literally a couple days ago of a really nice buck and you can i mean he's he's you know neck swollen ready to go and somebody had i don't know if they screenshot they posted it in one of the facebook groups and it was one. It was one of your photos, and they were like, you know, these deer are already rutting down in, in uh, you know, South Florida, and all these guys, even like we're at in North, uh, you know, more like not, I'm not gonna say continental United States, but North of Florida, we're freaking out like, how are these deer are already rutting, and it's like, you know, it's the time of the year of when they have to, you know, they got to put spawns down probably in February in order for them to to yeah. live uh, with hurricanes oh, yeah. and everything else. So, anyways. It, one thing that just blows my mind, especially after seeing some of your photos, is where these deer live. Because, again, if they are in this more grassy, uh, more grassland-type habitat, pasture habitat, how do you see those deer, just from, like, a, a wide view, how do they use that habitat all year long, especially when it comes to, like, when storms hit and everything else? I mean, do they stay on that stuff pretty much often, or do they go back in some more security cover at some other point of the year? I mean, when we've had, we actually had one year a hurricane came through and uh, I can't remember which one it was. And we started seeing a lot of action on cameras as that hurricane was rolling through. And they were going straight into some pines and some cypress for just to get that cover. But I mean, we had some wild videos of a lot of bucks and does just cruising to get into that cover. Interesting. Okay. But in lightning, lightning storms, or, or I mean, we have massive lightning storms and, uh, and rain here every day, pretty much in the afternoons. I mean, those deers will be right out, right smack in the open. Okay. They're not going to go for any cover. So that, that I wanted to say all this, cause I want to say this at the beginning of the podcast to really set the precedent of what we're talking about and how, I mean, kind of fascinating this is, especially like the area of the country that you hunt, how these deer react to it. 
and just the opportunity that y'all have. Because one thing that maybe we can talk about, Ray, early in this episode before we really get into the nitty-gritty on these tactics and these strategies is, you know, Florida has a pretty cool opportunity when it comes to the amount of buck tags that you get in that state. Can you talk about that a little bit, how many state tags y'all get and the opportunities there, especially with some quota hunts? We're allowed five bucks or three bucks and two does. But most of the management areas we hunt down in the south, we have no doe take. We can't shoot a doe. So it's straightly, I mean, basically it's great. I mean, we get to shoot five bucks. We do have an antler restriction. Some areas are three points uh, on one side, one inch every point, or a 10-inch beam. Some other areas got a, a two-point uh, on one side. It all depends on what management area. And that's one thing I tell everybody. If you're going to hunt a specific one, make sure you read those regulations real good because it can vary. Yep. Uh, one other thing, because, again, I'm just really fascinated with this before we get into this topic because this is going to come – uh, as relative uh, or more relevant uh, a little bit later in the podcast. What would you say, especially like when you're talking like a mature buck down there, you know, four and a half years old or bigger or older, what do you, what would you say like the live body weight of a deer like that would be down there? I mean, we vary like in the Everglades, you'll get deer three and a half year old could be probably 110, 110 pounds. Then you'll get some that are maybe 140s. Uh, in the pasture areas, we, we shoot deer anywhere from 110 pounds to maybe 160. So it just varies depending by age. And, uh, most of these public lands are surrounded by, uh, public, I mean, uh, private land. So you got feeders on the other side of fences. They got protein feeders. So those deers will definitely have better food, food plots. When they jump over the fence, it's game on. Okay, perfect. That's going to come into relevance when we talk about archery hunting and, you know, when it comes to shot opportunities and everything because, like, the size of the animal, which we'll get to in a little bit, uh, because the the style of hunting that y'all do and implement that helps you, and especially you and your son, be so successful is hunting very aggressively. You're not waiting on any kind of deer. And also, you've really kind of learned how to be versatile in this landscape, both you and your son, and, and how to be able to adapt with the situation where a lot of guys like myself – I'm like, yeah, I can imagine, you know, spotting, stalking a deer. I've never done it, but I'm looking at like, that's what you guys do year in and year out down there for ever how many years you've been bow hunting and specifically bow hunting. We're going to get to kind of some muzzler talk as well, but like the bow hunting aspect, I mean, it's very, very similar as you would see guys out in the West hunting for like antelope and mule deer, uh, specifically more antelope, kind of like the bigger kind of plateau flats. And they're just trying to get close enough to be able to get an archery shot. Um, it brings up one question and not to sidetrack the conversation. Have y'all ever tried to decoy a deer out there, um, or, or use like a doe decoy to kind of get yourself a little bit closer? Me personally, no, but I do have buddies that have actually used, uh, doe decoys or they'll use a silhouette of a cow. I think, uh, I can't remember what company makes it. And it does work. We do have its pasture. There's a lot of cows. So whatever you can use to that advantage, yes, it will work. Very cool. I mean, I've, I've seen two guys stalk. That was like two years ago. One guy was holding the cow uh, decoy, the big old foldable type, and his buddy was right behind him. They got, I think, within about 50 yards. And, I mean, he did with that shot, which, I mean, I was watching it all from my truck, and I was like, damn. <laughs> that must have sucked, but we all we all been there, so I mean it's part of the game. I mean missing is part of the game, so. <laughs> but yeah, that that was actually. Um, I mean, not many people use it, but it does work. Yeah, and I was gonna say that company that makes that decoy is uh, Montana Decoys. Uh, I've seen yeah, guys. That one, that- that's the one, the Montana decoy. Yep, and yeah, foldable is a you know a two sided decoy. Um, that's yet yeah, that's super super interesting so again there's a lot of similarities between this style of hunting and, and how guys antelope hunt out west so that's that's really kind of oh, cool yeah. here uh now kind of i want to kind of move forward a little bit you're talking about scouting in this area you know this is going to be very you know ho- hopefully listeners hearing this even if you live in an area that has nothing nothing of habitat like what we're talking about here it's just fascinating to listen to like you talk about this and us kind of learn of the different whitetail opportunities we have here especially in the southeast um, because, you know, say this is what I'm looking at. 
say a guy's like, oh, I want to go out west, and they can't afford to travel out west or whatever. Well, if you can get down to South Florida and get a tag, especially one of these general, you know, uh, general uh, – no, not quota. But you said there's some public land down there that you don't have to have a, a – you don't have to draw for to go get access to. Or you put it for a quota oh, yeah. hunt. Yeah. You can still go do a spot-and-stock-style hunt without having to travel halfway across the continental United States if you live in, like, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina. You know, you can get down there to where you're at in, like, 12 to 14 hours, depending on where you live. Um, so, anyways, it's kind of interesting here. But I want to kind of get back into the scouting aspect of what kind of consists of scouting. You mentioned glassing is a huge part of what y'all do, uh, and it makes plenty of sense, especially on the more open areas, these big pasture lands where you can glass for thousands of yards. So that's huge. How, how do you implement trail cameras if you do implement trail cameras in and around any of those types of properties? Well, that's when uh, we'll just walk the perimeter edges that do have uh, oak heads and uh, pine areas. What we just did this weekend, we went out. I mean, I've been hunting this property. Say it's a quota. It's a it's all quota, but I've been hunting it for about ten years. I got a lot of buddies that will invite me, so um, I know the area. So we all usually get a good shot at something. And uh, but this one, it's uh, the same thing: pasture, pines, some dog fennel, which is usually about five six foot uh, kind of grass type, real thick. The deer bed in it which is great for them, but I mean, it's hard to spot them in there, but we'll set up our cameras on those perimeters. We'll get on Google earth and find like pinch points on a corner of each kind of open pasture. And then you might have one pasture and right smack in the middle, you'll have two pastures and in the middle, you'll have a small funnel pines and we'll, we'll definitely start setting up some game cameras there. I mean, I'll set up five or six cameras within 80 yards of each other just to figure out which trail might be the best used. And all depends on how much rain we get. I mean, it's been raining here, so our water level dictates how the deer move also. So the higher the water, the easier it is to pattern for us down here. I mean, once once those fields will start getting flooded, the deer are going to work more down the edges of the pines, which is, that's what we love. I mean, the higher the water, the easier it is. Is it pretty common for it to flood out there where you have like a lot of these pastures with standing water in it? Oh yeah. Right now we walked an area where me and my son went in last year was about 10 inches deep. We were in knee deep water to get to the high ground. And we set up uh, four cell cameras, and within an hour, we already had deer walking right by it. Very cool. But we use that water to our advantage. I mean, we'll set it up right on them edges of the outer, the shallower part. I mean, the deer here, they don't mind water. So we, we're not going to be sitting on high ground where there's just typically 100% dry. We'll just hunt those edges that still hold water, and the deer will just funnel right through it. Our deer are kind of, they, I think they like to swim, man. Those things are in water all day. So do they kind of seek out that shallower edge of the water? Are you saying they kind of almost oh, yeah. use that as a travel yeah. corridor? They'll use that as a perfect travel corridor. I mean, I've, I'm, I'm usually hunting within 20, 30 yards of any dry spot, but I'm basically on, if I'm on my climber, I'm on, I'm on water. And being that it's such a open terrain and a lot of grasslands, uh, and you said that you like to use maps, are you f- actually locating deer trails based on like satellite imagery where you're seeing the deer trail on the image and then going and looking? I mean, that will change. Uh, usually it's about a year or a year or two years old or Google Earth, but uh, it does work. Uh, we most, I'll just use that Google Earth for, to find pinch points, flag ponds how to work, how to, if you got two flag ponds, let's say within a hundred yards of each other, but the the center is dry and it's got a couple pines or cypress, we can actually put a climber. We'll set up there because the deer will definitely feed on the edges of the flag pond. It's all got nice green sprouts always coming up. So that's food source. It's all green. We got everything is all food source. So you just can't find one specific food source everything is green that's all they eat unless you got a, a old tree dropping acorns 
if you find that, you might have the golden apple right there. But usually, yeah, yeah. The, on on Google Earth, we use that a lot. We'll even use it if we're going to put on a song. We'll try to find any sort of advantage how we can get to that spot, even if we got to drive around a mile. There's a lot of access roads, so if we know where the deer is at and we just got to drive around. We might leave. Uh, I usually don't have anybody to, to spot me. My son's doing that now, but he always gets on the phone and starts playing video games, which I already told him I'm going to whoop his butt about that. Because uh, <laughs> I spot for him and he's just sitting down uh, playing video games. And I already told him, I'm like, dude, I'm going to whoop your ass if you get on that phone again <laughs> and, 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 not t- and not text me or call me and tell me, hey, man, you're 100 yards you're 200 yards from the deer or the deer's gone. Uh, you wasted your time. That does happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing I'm curious about when you're going in to check spots and you're looking for some of these pinch points, or even if you're just looking for an area to set your cameras, what kind of deer sign are you paying attention to? Are you looking for things like rubs and scrapes or tracks? Well, yeah. well scrapes, I mean, you got water, very little scrapes. You do find them, but it's usually trails and uh definitely rubs and once we find like an active trail i'll set minimum i run about 16 18 cell cameras i'm actually adding four more uh this week so i'm like i said i've put five six cameras on one trails in different angles just to see if i can make sure to catch whatever is going through there it's basically inventory of seeing what's in the area when you say that you're putting five or six cameras on one trail, uh, is that like a defined trail and they're all just getting different angles at the same spot? Or are you kind of spreading them out through like a bigger funnel, trying to cover that entire funnel side to side? Sometimes I'll put three on the same trails, different angles, and then just work around about a 20, 30 yard perimeter and add a few more cameras on off trails that don't get used much, but they'll still use it all depending on, water fluctuations like right now the water is real high so they quit using one of our main trails so we left one on the main trail and we added two more on two other trails that were definitely don't ever get used but now with the water being high that's what they're being pushed to but yeah we'll we'll run probably five six cameras in the same within sometimes 50 30 yards of each other just to pinpoint which trail is going to be used better do y'all uh, notice any difference on the when, in this kind of situation do you notice anything different between the bucks and the does uh, especially the mature bucks and how they're moving through are they using the same trail that the does are or are they off to the edge sometimes they pretty much use the same trails the bigger bucks will kind of stay in thicker cover um definitely kind of that's why we'll put two or three cameras in the same vicinity because they'll definitely, they'll skip areas just to go around through the thicker stuff. Yeah, they'll definitely, just, it's like they kind of know that you're being watched. But that's another thing. I mean, our deer, you put a camera, within hours, you'll have a deer come smell that camera. And they'll just come back day by day just to smell the camera, which is, it's odd. Uh I run cameras in Georgia and they're not that, I mean, they're, they don't, they don't do that up there. They're, they're different. Our deer are special basically. Ray, I want to talk about um, the, the buck behavior down there and kind of what you see. Do you see these bucks, especially when you're talking like, like a, a little bit older buck, do you see them often by themselves or are you still see them with other bucks, especially yet, you know, talk about august when season kind of comes i think it's august 6th throughout that first month of season are they by themselves or do you see them with a lot of other deer even like after the rut because you've mentioned a couple times if you're spotting stalking it might be multiple deer in this little area that you're trying to get up to to get a shot at one of the bucks what does that look like and what have you seen out there when it comes to like those you know that buck behavior on the rut usually we'll have that big mature buck with that doe but i've had three other two-year-olds, three-year-olds, one-and-a-half-year-olds just hanging out, see if he can get a piece of action. And uh, But, yeah, usually they're by themselves with a doe, 
when we see them cruising, they'll be just cruising by themselves. Usually, they don't really hang out with the smaller bucks. Um, once they uh, they all get together, ruts over. I mean, you'll see two, two, three bucks together, different age class. I mean, all the way from yearling to actually, there was a good one. We uh, we were doing a stock, me and my son, and we came out on the on an edge of a flag pond. And then when I looked to my right, I saw a button book. And then he never saw me. We we kind of startled at each other when we looked at each other. And then I'm like, well, all the bucks are together. There's got to be somebody else with them. And then when I started scanning the area, there was a, it was an eight point. He was about a three and a half year old at 45 yards, just feeding, had no clue we were there. My son couldn't see him because he was a lot smaller. So I'm like, hey, man, I got to take this shot. That was with a muzzleloader. So I just told him, uh, I was like, hey, see where he runs. And when I shot, he didn't move an, he didn't move an inch. But as soon as I saw that young buck, I knew there had to have been another buck with him somewhere as a bachelor group. So that definitely, as soon as I saw that button buck, it was, I knew there was going to be somewhere, somebody else with him. So I want to talk about this, uh, especially some of these questions are from the listeners that had recommended you. One of them being, he, he kind of lives in the same general area, hunts like that kind of southern part of uh, Florida, has success very hit or miss. Uh, and one thing he brought to me about you guys is just the consistency of success you'll have during bow season and especially during the muzzleloader season as well. Can you touch on what do you think is like the biggest reason why a lot of other hunters in this area that's hunting publicly and aren't successful, especially during those two times of the year? Well, our weather is really hot. A lot of guys give up by 10 a.m. They go to the motel, hang out. We hunt all day. It's all day. We'll just drive glass. We'll do stocks midday. I've killed probably over two dozen deer midday, anywhere between 11 to 3 p.m. Yep, it is 90 plus degrees, but you got to do what you got to do. That's what I tell everybody. Persistence. Hunt hard all day. You only got a three-day or four-day quota. Put in all your effort. And it should, it will happen. I mean, if you put in that time out there and persistence, go check out an oak head, go check out an open field, glass it, sit there on top of your roof for about an hour, just glassing. A lot of guys are like, oh, I just saw three does. There's no bucks there. I'll go drive that field. I'll park, sit there. Within 20, 30 minutes, buck stands up figure out a game plan, try to kill them. That's what I tell everybody, persistence, man. Definitely stay out there from the motel or home, you ain't gonna kill them. Houndstooth Game Calls is your home for turkey calls this spring. Go check them out. They got all the classic turkey calls. You know, they got the pot calls and the box calls and the mouth calls, but they also got a couple really interesting calls. One of them is called the the success call, and you just need to go look it up. It's very, it's like a box call that you can work with one hand. It's really, really cool. Sounds incredible. They also got the Spurmaster, which is another very unique call that you can get some really unique, clean tones out of. They're going to help you out this turkey season. Use the promo code SOP20 to get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls. That's SOP24. Use it at checkout. It helps the podcast. So let me ask this then. Can we talk? I want to talk a little bit about your uh, your bow setup as in like how do you practice to be able to take the execute these shots and, and do this style of hunting, which is a very much aggressive spot in stock. You're not really hanging back necessarily, especially early in the season. Uh, you're going to try to make something happen. And one thing you told me previously on a phone call was you know, if you were just like the average guy, which is like, you know, you know, I've got three or four days to hunt, you know, if I see a good buck, I'm just going to reposition the next day or whatever. You're like, no, if I see a good buck, I'm going in there and trying to kill him. Either I screw up or I kill him. It's one of the two. Can you talk, can you talk a little bit about your archery setup and like, what are you trying to be prepared for? Because if you're spotting stalking, you may talk about this a little bit earlier. It's not like you're gonna be able to crawl in on a spot and then be able to stand up to get a perfect shot. So can you talk about like, what do y'all do to practice to make yourself as efficient as possible come season to be able to execute these shots? Well, at our archery club, we shoot all the way up to 80, 90 yards. We have uh, wood scenarios with 3D between deer, hogs, and all kinds of different animals. They're all positioned different angles, so it's not going to be that perfect broadside shot. So we'll take frontal shots, quartering away, quartering two. That's what I've been teaching my son for years. I mean, he's got it down packed. But 
any new hunters. Actually, this weekend we were actually with a new guy shooting a bow, and we were teaching him all the proper angles at different ranges and just quartering away shots. It's not going to be your perfect broadside shot. But yeah, we practice all the way to 80, 90, just to shoot. The more efficient you are at longer ranges, if you can hit 80, 90, a 20, 30, 40, 50 yard shot, it's going to be a lot easier. You can still miss. There's still a lot of things that can happen. We have a lot of grass. You can hit a blade of grass. Anything can happen. You can get stuff caught in your cam as you're stalking. It does happen. It has happened. But yeah, basically we will we'll practice kneeling on the ground, kind of just awkward angles that it's not your normal shooting stance at a shooting club, which 90% of our shots, even from a tree stand, it ain't going to be that. So I tell everybody, it's like practice how you're going to hunt. If you're going to start stalking, practice that way. We'll get on your hands and knees and get on your knees, range that animal and take a shot. I mean, it's, it's all got to be pretty much step by step. You got to practice all of that to get it going. And our bow, uh, bow setup, I shoot a Hoyt, nothing. I mean, it's, it's not the bow. It's usually the Indian behind it. Uh, I do shoot, uh, fixed pins. I have a seven, uh, pin sight, uh, 20, 30, 40, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 75, and 80. And my 80 is basically if you happen to pull a bad shot on a, on, on any animal, if you can take that follow-up shot and put him out of his misery as soon as possible, I'll take that 80, 90 yard shot. Absolutely. Just to, just, just to get, just to not let him suffer. Well, it does happen as part of our career. Absolutely. But it comes down to being like being very comfortable with your equipment and being very effective, especially you know, shooting at distance. You know, I, I've heard from guys that live out west when they have, like, someone that comes from the east as a whitetail hunter, like, oh, you know, my comfort range is 30, 35, 40 yards. They're going on antelope hunt. They're like, dude, you're probably not going to be able to shoot anything. Like, the likelihood you're going to get a shot within 40 yards is going to be slim to none. And I love those guys out there, especially for antelopes, talking about shooting, you know, 65, 70, even 80-plus yards, depending on the right conditions, if not even maybe farther, depending on the, the archer. Um and it kind of comes down to, like, if you're in that spot and stock scenario, especially open ground spot and stock, because you can spot and stock in a bunch of different habitat type. I've done it in thicker woods and shot deer at, like, 15, 20 yards, but it's nothing like what y'all are doing. Uh, and that's, Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we practice long range because our normal kill range, it's anywhere between 40 to 70. Yeah. 60, it's what I try to get in. Anything under 60, I'm taking that shot. We shoot pretty much every day. Uh, for usually our season will start August 6th. We'll be, we'll start shooting from May and just pretty much every day. Uh, I was going to the range, but I had this meeting with you guys, but as soon as I'm done, I'm actually going to the range. They got the night lights on. So we're, we definitely going to get out there. I mean, that's practice, practice and practice. Absolutely. The better you're shooting, the better you're going to do out there. Absolutely. So, so it seems like, again, kind of looking at some of these questions that some of these listeners had put in, you know, it seems like a big issue that a lot of these guys were having is the idea of, like, using a tree stand and, fit, and especially in these more open areas, limiting themselves to this, those little, you know, flag pond areas or those little spots of those pines. And the way you kind of come about doing this is being a lot more versatile, having the opportunity to be like, hey, if I have to put a spot in stock on something, I have full confidence I can do it and figure out what's the best you know, path of travel to get to that deer. And you're talking about using everything from drainages, getting, you know, little drainages and draws uh, to you know, get down the water and kind of ease into them, which makes me ask this while we're in the middle of podcast, do you get any, you get any good alligator snake stories from like, any of these hunts? <laughs> Actually, yeah. Uh, last year, my son killed uh, an eight point and uh, the quickest route to get to him because it was going to be dark soon. It was right through the flag bond. And as I'm working my way through the edges, I could see the lines of the gators as they're creeping through. And I just, I had my bow on my shoulder and I just grabbed it with my hand, cocked it ready in case I had to swing it at one, if I would step on it. Literally two minutes after I thought of that, I stepped on about a seven footer. Luckily he was facing the opposite way, but he went one way. I jumped backward 
almost kind of swinging the bow. But yeah, talk about a, a pucker up moment. Uh, yeah, that wasn't that funny at that point. When I got to where he was, he's like, uh, why are you kind of jumping? I'm like, I just stepped on a nice seven footer. He's like, oh yeah, I've been, I've been seeing him from the stand. I go, yeah, I know, but it's not, it's not the greatest feeling right, right before dark stepping on a gator. Oh man, I, did, I was waiting. Yeah, I was... It, 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 it it just brings that level of hunting spot and stock a little bit higher. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> mm. yeah, yeah. That's that's a good point. Yeah, snakes. I mean, it's not a big deal. We do encounter boxes, rattlesnakes. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's that's part of the game, man. Never had an issue with it. Uh, just kind of watch your surroundings. I mean, you got to watch the deer. You got to watch where you're putting your hands as you're stalking. So, uh, yeah, it does happen. I mean, I've, I've crawled over uh, cow, uh, the cow manure, so nice and warm, fresh. And you're like, damn, that one sucked. And if you didn't, ki- if you didn't kill that deer, that, that one really does suck because now you're going to come back full of crap. But I do carry in my truck. Usually on any hunt, I'll take six to eight pair of pants and shirts. Because, I mean, we're stalking all day. One thing that you mentioned earlier that kind of piqued my interest was you were talking about your glassing off, like, the roof of your car. Um, are you pretty much, when you're moving around trying to locate deer, are you always doing it from the truck, from a road? Or do you ever try to get into some off-the-road areas that you can't see from roads? We'll walk off to some oak heads. We'll start glassing from those areas. We do use what uh, the cow ponds, when they dig up the dirt so the cows can actually go drink water, those are mounds. We'll get on top of those mounds and just glass. I mean, you'll have two, 3,000 yards of view in a 360 degree. So it's basically we'll get out there and just sit up there for a couple hours and just start glassing. And then the other point that you were talking about from a stand if we do see a deer and we're on actually on our climber, if he's not coming our way, we're going to get down and try to figure out how to put a stock on it. It's not going to be like, we'll set up tomorrow and try to kill him tomorrow. We're going to try to get that done today. Tomorrow, I might not make it back for some sort of reason, truck, truck can break or anything can happen. But yeah, if we see that deer and we can stalk it that same morning, afternoon, we're going to go after them. The next question on that is, when you are sitting down to glass a spot, how long do you give that area? Are you kind of locked in and you're going to glass this area pretty much all day? Or do you have a certain amount of time where you feel like you've covered the area and you're going to move on to the next spot? That all comes down to our scouting. I mean, sometimes we'll be out there scouting from daybreak till dark all day. Um, We'll give an area probably a good hour uh just from if we got a good vantage point real high i mean we'll sit up there three four hours we killed uh we killed the buck last year on the last gun hunt we know where we knew they were going to be in there they were going to be using some thick dog fennel as recovered to come through so we just took some uh, beach chairs and we sat up there and i mean it, it was whoever i a buddy of mine drove by couple hundred yards and he called me up he goes hey are you sitting up on that mound on a beach chair i go yep i go all i need is sunscreen and we're ready to go (laughs) but uh we knew what was going to be coming out of that area so i think we're up there about two three hours we sat up there at two o'clock and at 5 20 we had a nice eight point come out and i shot that one so i want to talk about um, I think it was, if you told me correctly, and if I remember the story correctly, last year it was an 11 point you killed where it was a muzzler hunt. You were in a stand. It wasn't necessarily coming your direction. You kind of put a move on it. Was that last year that you did that? Yeah, that was, that was last year. Actually, it was a 12 point. Okay. It was a mainframe 10 with two kickers on it. Yeah. So let, let's talk about that. Cause this is something I just want to highlight. And this is for all hunters, whether you're hunting down in Florida or not, this is something I'm going to kind of take the hardest. No matter if you're just a weekend warrior and you're hunting a place that you can hunt all all year long or all season long, or it's a quota hunt where you only have a few days to hunt it, being more aggressive, I think, can really kind of play a factor for you, especially if you have these kind of opportunities. So can you talk a little bit about that hunt specifically and, and explain, like, how being aggressive that day helped you come home with a really, really nice deer? Well, on that deer, we 
he we knew he was in the area because we saw him during scouting in uh, in July. I set up uh, eleven cameras within a three hundred yard perimeter just to see what area he was coming in and out. He was in mostly in a big pasture surrounded by oak heads. I mean, pretty big oak heads. Some oak heads were probably 600 yards uh, long, probably about 100 yards wide. So I was trying to figure out which trail he was coming in and out of. He avoided most of the trail cams. That was in August, opening day of archery, which I should have been there on my climber, but I barely sit on it. On archery, I'll do spot and stalk. He was there at 7.30 in the morning. So that was kind of like a bummer. I thought he might have been dead because it hadn't popped up on camera till three days before muzzleloader. We went back in, reset up the cameras, and then left the area alone. I mean, it was only three days before the hunt. I sat on a cabbage palm overlooking a field that was about 1,500 yards long and about 500 yards wide just so I can have a good vantage point of where if he's going to move in from whether a thousand yards or 500 yards or 50 yards. And as I was sitting there, I mean, I had seen the does get up right at daybreak. And then I was wondering, he had been in that area. And then as I'm glassing and looking at 830, when I look right in front of me, I just see a big deer just standing in the middle of a wide open field and about a foot and a half grass. I'm like, there's no way he came in from either side without me noticing. He was just bedded there and got up at 8.30. Now, he was at 350 yards, so with a muzzleloader, that's kind of like a, he ain't going to, I mean, I, I'm not going to shoot it. So I just figured out the wind and climbed down out of my cabbage palm and started belly crawling. I got to about 200 yards. I opened up my shooting sticks. I was going to take about a 160 yard shot. He was kind of working my way. So I decided I'm like, Hey, I can creep up another 50, 80 and get about a hundred yard shot and get it done. I creeped in about 60 yards. I opened up my shooting sticks, little portable sticks that I keep on my, my pack. And as soon as I was going to shoot him, like at 140, he turned and started walking right to me. So I'm like, there's no point of shooting him at 140 when I can wait. And I actually shot him at about 70, 80 yards. And uh, he didn't, I just, as soon as I shot, I heard that impact. I jumped up immediately. I'm trying to reload, cloud of smoke, but I'm not seeing any deer running. A buddy of mine's across me about another 700 yards. He had seen the deer. He was wondering if I had seen it. He kept on texting me, but I wasn't paying attention to any of the text. And as soon as I started walking, I knew he was a friend, mainframe 10. But when I got there and I noticed the two kickers, he was a 12. I mean, I was uh, jumping like a little girl out there. <laughs> that, was, uh, that, that, was, that was a sweet hunt. And I mean, from there on, my nerves kicked in. I mean, I was just shaking. What that was and he scored. He scored actually 108. So pretty decent buck for, for down here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and another thing that's just, again, wanted to be highlighted is just the idea of like not settling – just because you put a tree stand up or you're in a, a you know tree saddle or whatever doesn't mean you have to kill the deer from that location. Like you, nope. you, you can still nope. be mobile nope. and I be mean, aggressive. If, if I see one working the edge of a cypress or a oak head and he's going away, uh, I know the area, so I kind of know which way to go. But if you don't know the area, get on Google Earth, figure it out. And me personally, I'm going to get down and kind of creep in through the edges. Once I kind of have an idea where he might be, I'll slow down and just kind of Elmer fud my way through it and be ready to shoot. Have the, if you're going to be with a bow, I mean, have that arrow knock uh, your um, your release on and ready to shoot. I mean, you can. I've turned a corner of an oak head or any kind of trail, and I've bumped into a buck at twelve yards. I mean, and if you're not ready, you're not going to get that shot. Now, if you're ready for that scenario, you'll be able to execute it. So always be ready. But yeah, we do. We will get down and try to kill them that morning, midday, that afternoon. I, I, I mean, I've moved stands on deer, but barely. I mean, if we can't get it done, we'll move it over there to where we saw them kind of working a corner of a, of a wood field, a pine edge or something. We'll definitely move over there. 
But if we can get it, if we can get to it that same day, we're going to move. We're going to get on them. So, Ray, would you say like one of your biggest pieces of advice would be to be more aggressive and not be so passive as, as a whitetail hunter in situations like this? We're aggressive, man. I mean, every year I kill four or five bucks. My son's right now at two to three bucks, and he's 18 right now. And with a bow last year, he actually whooped my butt. He killed two nice bucks. So I was actually very happy for him. But, yeah, we were aggressive on it. And I tell them the same way as we're done, if we're done hunting, let's say 10, 30, 11, instead of taking that short path to the truck, go around to just walk randomly somewhere else and take about a mile, two mile loop to get to your truck. I mean, that can make the difference of going home with something or just on a straight walk back to your truck, 400 yards walk. I'll take that mile loop and kind of figure out the wind and creep in slowly through the wood line. And I've killed plenty of deer that way. If somebody's in the area, we don't try to mess them up. I mean, if we know somebody's there, well, we won't go into that spot. But if we're hanging out in an area that nobody's near there, we're definitely going to creep in, just go around to get to our vehicle and do a spot and stalk on the way back. Right. I love that piece of advice, especially for guys who have limited time to hunt. And yeah, instead of walking right back to your truck, use that time, that time that would otherwise be pretty useless, just walking in a straight line back to the truck, you know, hanging your head all bummed out, you didn't see anything, you know, make a loop and try to find something new. Yep. They throw their bow on their shoulder, they put the gun on the sling, and they just go on a beeline straight to the truck. I'm like, my son's like, where are we going? Because he knows we ain't going to do that. And I'm like, all right, you see that oak head two miles away? He goes, yep. I go, get ready. Let's go for a little nature hike. And we just work our way that way slowly, checking the wind, glassing, stopping every maybe 100 yards, just sitting there. I mean, we'll just get next to a oak tree, cabbage palm, and just kind of glass the whole pasture and see what we see. I mean, that's how we find a lot of deer, just in the open pasture, just bed it down, and we'll figure out how to creep in and on them and put a shot on them. But the straight walk to the truck, we barely do that. When it comes to the stalking, we've talked a lot about the stalking aspect of this of your hunting style during this podcast. Um, when it comes to the stalking, what are some of the finer details of that? I mean, what was the learning curve like when you were, you know, starting to learn how to stalk these deer and get in on them? I mean, what are some of the things that that makes a successful stalk that people should know? Like, what are people messing up on? I mean, patience is more of the key. I wasn't given that when I was born because I'm very impatient, but I do have to hold myself back and work your way slow glass as you're putting that stock, just glass around, making sure there's not another deer you never saw. Usually that's what gets you bumped up by another deer. Uh, patience get low on the ground and take your time. I mean, I've done, three hour stalks on a deer. Uh, two years ago, I started at three, 345. I killed that eight point at, uh, I think it was eight o'clock. It almost four, um, four and a half hours almost to get on them. And I, that stock was about 1500 yards long. The first 400 was pretty much kind of like regular walk through some high dog fennel. The last five, 600 was pretty much on hands and knees. That took that, that 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 was probably one of the best stocks I've ever done, and it took a lot. And uh, used as much cover as I could. I mean, I pretty much went about 200 yards on the side of a drainage ditch just to creep in and just to get that lower advantage. He was only in about two foot grass, and he had like six does, so there was a lot of eyes out there. That was going to be my next question: was the, the, how long these stocks typically take because. If you haven't done it before, it's like you kind of wonder, is this like a, is this something that's going to take 15 or 20 minutes or is this going to be a several hour ordeal actually trying to get in on this deer? I'll take, I'll take luck, man. We drove in in one area. We were about to pull in a gate to go hunt a different spot. And my son just says, hey, there's a deer like at 600 yards away. So I put on the binos on him. I saw it was a buck. We were still in shorts. We we're just getting in to go hunt. So we changed, uh, we changed them to some cattle, started putting on a stock. We got to where we thought he was. When we get there, he's not there. 
as soon as I creeped in 20 more yards, he's actually on the other side of a fence line, still in the same management area in some high dog fennel. And I put a 20 yard shot on him. That took 15 minutes to kill that deer. So it all depends. I mean, some will take an hour, some will take three, some will take five, 10 minutes. Some you can actually move in real quick on them. Some you don't. I mean, some open pasture, it could be two hours of belly crawling. And I mean, and it might not work. And then you just got to get up and try it again and figure it out. See what you learned from that mistake if you made any. I mean, because mistakes will happen. I just tell everybody, it's like, hey, man, get up and do it again. I mean, the mistakes will happen. So it's part of hunting. But if you learn from it and put the knowledge to it, you will be, it is, it's not the easiest thing to stalk a deer down here, but it is doable. I tell guys all the time, if you can't, if you don't try it, you will never know. So just put the stops on and just use whatever cover, take your time, patience, and it will, but you got to practice those 40, 60 yard shots with a boat. Right. This will be one of my last questions. We're coming up on one hour here. When you see a deer that's moving, like let's say you're in a tree stand and you see a buck moving away from you and you say you're going to get down and go to him. Are you just trying to basically get in front of him and cut him off? Or are you going to try to watch him until he beds or, or kind of settles down and then move in on him? Usually if he's walking, going somewhere, we might have an idea where he's going. If we can go around him and get in front, we will. If not, we'll try to come in right from behind him just always checking that wind. He's always going to be walking with the wind in his favor. He's going to be walking into the wind. So we'll definitely come in from the back. Ray, is that something with you mentioning that they, they're walking with the wind to their, you know, in their favor, in their face? Is that something you see pretty often? Like if a, if a mature buck or just a, a good buck is out walking, he's going to have some kind of wind advantage while he's walking through a certain area? Pretty much. I mean, he knows where he's going to go bed whether it's on the edge of a flag pond or oak head. I mean, they'll, they'll stick to the outer edges more than inside from what we've seen. But, yeah, he'll be walking with that wind in his favor. Sometimes, like I said, we talked before, you said if he'll bed with with the wind in his favor, the wind will be behind him, right across from behind his head, and he'll be watching from the downwind and just to see what's cre- if somebody creeps in, in on him. But those uh, those better deer, I mean, if you get low enough and patience, grunt calls do work. I mean, definitely take a grunt call. They will respond. They're very curious. If you hide behind a bush and they know something's up, they might actually just walk up right up to you within 30, 40 yards. Just be patient. Patience is the key. And then sometimes you just got to figure out if you got to move faster or go slower, it's all, every deer is different. I mean, all the stocks are all been different. I mean, there's not one that's been pretty much textbook. Like I did this one. I'm going to do this one on the next one. It's like, you got to see what you have out there in the field and kind of how to work it. Ray, what was your biggest, um, I'm not going to say mistake. What was like the biggest learning curve to start having success when spotting stalking? Uh, using the range finder is very difficult out there. That's the biggest key because you do have a lot of small twigs and little leaves, uh, high grass blades that you're not going to get most of the times that perfect range. Like when you're nervous, you're going to be, your hand's going to be shaking. When you got that 80, 100 inch, 105, 110, it all depends. It could be a spike for whatever, for anybody. When you're trying to range that deer, when you're crawling, that's the hardest aspect of it, trying to get an accurate range. So if you can use anything near him, a cow, a little bush, if you can range that, that's the hardest part about stalking, getting that right range and then go with your gut feeling because that's when your brain will screw with you and you'll either shoot over and under. That's the biggest part. I mean, usually all your, all the range finder is going to pick up a lot of blades, little grass blades, and it's going to throw you off. That's when shooting at the range with different scenarios, trees or different setups, you can judge distance a little bit better. 
you could be ranging that deer. You, you know he's not at 30. That range finder is shaking in your hand and saying 30, but you know he's about 45. Go with that gut feeling and try to make a good shot on him. But that's the hardest part for me. Just making, I always try to range him. If I can't range him, I just won't take a wild shot. That's that's just me. I mean, if I can't get a good range on that deer, I'm not just going to whiff an arrow at him. I mean, missing, it's it's real hard, but wounding an animal is the worst. So I'd rather not take that shot and maybe get another shot another hundred yards off or just wait till maybe tomorrow, if depending on what time it is. Absolutely. Well, Ray, I'm just going to say we appreciate you coming on the podcast, sharing some knowledge with us, because this is interesting. Again, it's it's, I, it's something I didn't realize that we had other opportunities with, you know, in this area of the country, you know, spot and stock. I hear a lot of guys, you know, there's uh, southern West Virginia is known for spot and stock in that mine country, strip mine country. Um, and, of course, out west, like Kansas and farther out west as well for whitetails. But it's kind of interesting to see guys like you and your son and some other buddies doing this in South Florida, having success. And it's just another interesting way to hunt to kind of make somebody a versatile hunter. Now, whether or not listeners go out and implement that where they live and maybe it's something that's maybe not as applicable, I think one big takeaway from this podcast is being more aggressive. When the situation arises, you got to make something happen. Instead of just being there and just kind of waiting for the deer to do something, you need to get up and, and make something happen. That's pretty much what we do, man. I mean, if, if we're not going to wait for tomorrow. I think Andrew said, uh, you said you came down 75? Yeah. All right, yeah. So, yeah, basically you, you drove through. If you drove to 75, you pretty much drove through Big Cypress. Yeah. That's basically what we call hell on earth. That's about one of the hardest areas to hunt. But if you can kill a deer there, you use different techniques and kill a deer there, you can pretty much hunt anywhere in the U.S. I've hunted, I haven't hunted much deer out of pretty much Florida and Georgia, but I've turkey hunted pretty much the whole state. And uh, the hardest is Big Cypress. I've seen plenty of deer other states and they're, they're easier to pattern. But Big Cypress, where you drove through, a lot of your listeners probably hunt Big Cypress. It's probably about the hardest, but when you do kill one there, whatever size it is, man, it's, it, it's definitely rewarding. Absolutely. So it's, it's a badass area to hunt. It's tough area to hunt. Yeah, and that's definitely, I mean, driving through there again, that's that's the area where I'm just looking out and it just looks like a giant, you know, thick grassland. And that's where I'm like, man, I just don't even know how to approach this. I mean, it's just so different. It's, it's one of the toughest. It's one of the toughest in the, in our region, but it's plenty of deer, man. The deer are out there. They live in those open, those open grass. They love that thing. Well, Ray, I'm going to say this. If any of the listeners want to, you know, uh, you know, connect with you, follow along with what you got going on, especially with your Instagram chan- or Instagram uh, page, uh, or potentially even ask questions if you're open and people message you, ask questions. How can guys get a hold of you, especially on your Instagram? Well, my Instagram is Ray Martin Outdoors. They're welcome to send me a DM. Man, I don't mind helping people out. I mean, when I started, I learned it on my own. A couple guys that I asked, they didn't want to give me the time of day, so I don't mind sharing some knowledge. I mean, it's not a big deal. I mean, we all hunt the same management areas. It just takes that skill to kill them. So, I mean, I take, I get a lot of invites from guys that know they got that permit. I got the knowledge. So we go scout the area. I'll tell them, hey, man, I'll sit here, there, or here. You pick whichever tree. Then it comes down to luck. Or if I see that deer, I'm definitely going to get down and try to kill it. So, but yeah, anybody could DM me, man. I don't mind helping them out. I, that's that's the one thing that I never never had an issue with. Absolutely. Well, Andrew is actually on your uh, Instagram page right now, and I'm telling you, you got some awesome photos on there, especially from the photography aspect. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but really uh, good photos. But, al- but also to some of the deer that you've taken as well. That's yeah, that's the twelve point right there. Oh yeah. Uh, but anyway, so Ray, again, greatly appreciate you coming on the podcast. Again, hopefully, you know some of our. F- Florida listeners who, you know, kind of request you. Hopefully we did a good job kind of getting the information that they wanted to hear from you out, which I know we covered because they both were asking 
to get in more detail with you of how you are more successful uh, in early season, which it comes down to being aggressive, not being afraid to be, you know, spot and stalk and get after these deer. And again, it's a big takeaway for a lot of listeners. Again, just to get more aggressive in situations when you don't have a lot of time. If you don't have a lot of time to hunt, you're going to have to become more aggressive or you're going to be super, super patient to the aspect of like, you're just probably not going to kill anything or, or just by happenstance, by some luck. So, you know, as probably, Ray, you might would say, you know, go make something happen. But, Ray, do you got any final words before we hop off here? No, man, I appreciate you guys uh, putting me on the podcast. And, uh, I mean, I, at least, I mean, just get out there and hunt, man. That's what I tell everybody. Get out, get out to the woods, do some scouting, put that time in, and the time will pay off. And be aggressive. If you screw it up, get up and do it again. I mean, you're definitely going to kill if you're aggressive. Absolutely. Well, guys, we appreciate y'all listening to this week's podcast episode. If you've enjoyed it, please share it with a friend or buddy. Make sure you subscribe to the show. And also, by the way, if you're still listening to the podcast, make sure you check out our In the Field series. It's open to Apple Podcast subscribers and also Patreon members. So go check that out for some bonus content. But, again, thank y'all for listening. We'll catch you back here on this Friday's episode of the Southern Outdoorsman's Outro. So y'all have a great rest of your week. All right, guys, we're starting to get kind of close to summer here. And you know what my favorite part about summer is? The Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard us talk about it a lot last year, and we actually got to meet a lot of you guys at that expo. Well, we're excited to announce we're going to be there again. This time it's going to be in Dalton, Georgia, June 28th through June 30th. We're going to be there all three days. We're going to have a bunch of past podcast guests there. We're going to have a booth where you can come by and grab some merchandise. And I'm sure we're going to be recording all kinds of podcasts there. If you're unfamiliar, the Mobile Hunters Expo is the place you need to be if you are the kind of hunter that listens to this podcast. This show was literally made for you. It is an excellent group of people that are going to be there. A lot of whitetail killers from around the southeast are going to be there. You're going to get to talk to them, shake their hand, learn from them in person, make some connections. And guys, we get a lot of questions about uh, which saddle should I get? Which tree stand should I get? What about this piece of gear? What about that piece of gear? How do I meet other hunters who want to hunt the same way that I do? You know, finding a good hunting buddy. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a place for all of that. So you guys don't miss it. June 28th through the 30th, Dalton, Georgia. We'll see you there.